Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to the Coffee Clatch. This is Marianne Russo. Tonight, I am honored to welcome back Dr. Dimitri Papalos and Alyssa Bronstein. Dr. Papalos, as everyone knows, is the author of The Bipolar Child, and he's also the Director of Research for the Juvenile Bipolar Foundation. And Alyssa is the Project Manager on the um, study that we're going to be discussing tonight, the ketamine study. And um, they're making their third appearance here on the show. In previous interviews, we discussed the fear of harm phenotype um, with its core symptoms and thermal dysregulation commonly found in bipolar children and teens. And we also discussed the confusion um, that surrounds the disorder, and we're going to go into that a little bit more tonight. Um, the second interview, we discussed the incredible, and I mean incredible, cutting-edge research in genetics and the use of ketamine um, and the incredible outcomes that they've had. And I strongly encourage you to listen to those interviews. They're available anytime on archive, and um, I offer them free on um, iTunes, so please listen to those. And tonight, we are following up with some very big news. We have an announcement for us tonight, um, and it's really what parents have been waiting for. It's what parents need. They need hope. Families with children with bipolar are struggling. So it is a pr- pleasure to bring back Dr. Dmitry Popolos and Alyssa Brownstein. How are you? Good. Thank Good. you for having you? us, Marianne. Thank you. I'll say I feel like I've been watching an incredible unraveling <laughs> through your uh through these interviews and through your foundation. You know, as I said in our first interview, um, you know, I believe in what you're doing and you are really giving such hope to these parents, so thank you. Um I wanted to just start off by asking you, um, you know, we've discussed your fear of harm phenotype, but it really is so important. So can you just very briefly tell us what it is? <clears throat> sure. It, I have to say it's a little bit hard to describe it briefly. But because it, it doesn't correspond to any um, diagnosis that currently is part of the diagnostic manual uh, because it was established um, essentially using a very different way of going about um, uh, developing diagnostic criteria, which are different than the DSM. Um, it's not a, it wasn't a consensus diagnosis that a bunch of people came together who were experts and decided on well, this is this is the way we're going to define it, and there are going to be these boundaries between other disorders. Uh, when we first started out 10 years ago, we basically um, decided that we were going to look at all possible symptoms using a variety of symptoms that came out of the D- that were part of the DSM-4 uh, in um, all or, or many of the major childhood psychiatric disorders. What, what happened as a result of a number of different studies, including sibling pair studies that uh, looked at heritability of symptoms, of dimensions of symptoms, essentially resulted in a very, very specific set of 33 different behavioral symptoms that came together um, where mania and depression were not major symptoms, but where the group of children that met these criteria had mania and depression as significant aspects of the condition, okay? So um, that can mean many, many different things to us. It meant that um, although the field has been focused on things such as the length of time that somebody has mania or hypomania as a way of diagnosing the condition, um, it meant to us that they are really very... Uh, downstream from what the central symptoms are of at least a a large segment of the population that would be diagnosed by clinicians in the field with um, 
bipolar disorder uh, or pediatric bipolar disorder. Um, the, 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 the major, I would say, I mean, there are six specific um, um, categories uh, of symptoms that represent the illness. Um, I would say one of the most important and uh, heritable is what we determined or described as fear of harm. And fear of harm is a set of symptoms that, both, that involve um, symptoms of uh, uh, what, are, what would be called aggressive obsessions in, um, in, 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 in the world of obsessive compulsive disorder, um, aggressive behavior that is really much more territorial aggressive behavior, that is reactive aggression, that is uh, um, in, 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 in a more of a practical way, in a concrete way. It is children who are fearful, um, who have an incredible fear sensitization, and they respond to, for example, parents who say no to something that they want as a threat, and they respond with aggression. Um, that's what we would define as territorial aggression, and that's 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 part of the the syndrome that um, that uh, we've uh, defined. Um, and you know what I love about it is that it's it's accurate, and any parent who's been through it sees it and says that because the the diagnostic criteria in the DSM does not apply to children. Um, and the, you know, par- parents can go on your website. Um, where you have the fear of harm and you have all of the um, in dimensions, which I love also because it is very dimensional. Exactly. Yeah, you know, media and depression have always been such observable, large, um, just, you know, for, for anybody to observe a person in depression or in manic behavior, you would it's understandable why when we're trying to, in the past when they tried to define illnesses and it's been based on concepts of illness, just observational concepts, it's understandable why mania and depression would would be a big draw for focus. Um, what has been really astounding, and you know, Dr. Pablo's described this, is that while mania and depression really are indeed parts of this profile, what we have learned is, you know, while they're there and while they are very difficult to manage in your home with your family, it's very hard to see your child behaving in one of these two manners, that as far as the type of information that will help us to make progress on defining the illness and finding a treatment for it, the mania and depression are not the most important dimensions, not the most important set of symptoms in terms of being able to figure out the wholeness of the illness and how to move about in the research to to make it better. So they sort of sit there on the side, but they're not... Sorry, go ahead, ahead, Dr. Papa. And so so that's a very good sort of segue into, for example, there are two dimensions that uh, led us really to um, uh, thinking about what was actually going on in the central nervous system and what treatments might we might avail ourselves of that would actually treat the condition in a way that traditional medications don't, don't. And there were two dimensions. One of them had to do with sleep arousal. Okay, and I would have to say that one of the, I would say, major breakthroughs that came about after defining this uh, set of symptoms, um, sort of outside of the box, was that we um, we defined a set of symptoms that have to do with sleep and arousal, that all came together under one dimension, and these symptoms had to do with sleep onset, 
uh, trouble getting to sleep at night, uh, sleep and sleep offset, uh, sleep what we call sleep inertia, difficulty getting up in the morning. In, in the practical sense, parents know very clearly that it's like dealing with a bear that's hibernating, trying to get their child out of, uh, out of bed in the morning, um, which is what is called sleep inertia in the circadian rhythm literature. Um, as well children, as sleep disturbance through the night with nightmares and right. night terrors and such. Sorry, go right. ahead. The, what are called parasomnias or arousal disorders of sleep, which include nightmares, night terrors, teeth grinding, um, uh, sleepwalking, sleep talking, bedwetting, all of those things are in, in, within the uh, neurological literature about sleep are considered arousal disorders of sleep. And we see those over and over again in this group of children. And uh, when you look at the neuroscience literature that relates to circadian rhythms, what you find is that, um, uh, and those are 24-hour rhythms, uh, what you find is that body temperature regulation has a as a major determinant of all of those different factors: sleep arousal, sleep sleep uh, offset, and also switches from REM or dream sleep to non-REM sleep that are regulated by essentially changes, subtle changes in brain temperature. When we recognize that, which we never would have recognized had we essentially been confined to the idea of bipolar disorder as has been developed by um, the, the, uh, the nosology, the nomenclature that, that has existed all these years, uh, since 1980 anyway, um, we basically uh, were able to uh, say, to look at these children and, and, and ask ourselves, well, do these children actually have thermoregulatory problems? And indeed, this group of kids pretty much all have problems with thermoregulation. They, and that is, I would say, in general, the biological marker that allows us to, in part, identify the syndrome. Um, Let me just they, ask a few questions about that. Um, sure. You know, before you mentioned, um, you know, these different dimensions, um, and as I said, parents can go and look because it really is a great comprehensive list. But let's just say something is missing. Say aggression is missing, but all of the other symptoms that wouldn't exclude a child from that um, diagnosis. Is that correct? No, no, not necessarily, um, uh, um, because you know, over time, children essentially. Um, I mean. You know, this gets into a whole other topic in terms of how this condition affects the child intrapsychically, and you know where uh, you know we are all socialized basically over time, and aggression is not something that is acceptable, you know you know outright aggression. So many of these children essentially end up um, also having aggression directed at themselves. Okay. Um, and they develop what are called um, aggressive obsessions, which are um, which are symptoms that are typically viewed in the psychiatric uh, nomenclature um, in the di diagnostic manual as obsessive compulsive symptoms. But these right. kids have them in spades, and they have right. to do with fear of harm, and that is 
They are both afraid that they are going to be harmed, that they are easily threatened, that they are very, very, very sensitized to fear, and they are afraid of their own aggressive impulses, which they can repress to one degree or another, often depending on their age. I would assume also, too, or, you know, depending on, you know, the age of onset also. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, but it's just, it's it's so important um, for, for parents because so many kids are being misdiagnosed um, because there's so much overlapping. I mean, there is the obsessiveness, and the obsessiveness often you find with these children um, it is more scary images to them. It is more based in fear of something happening to them um, or fear of their own thoughts. Um, and the or thermal fear, dysregulation... Or or fear of something happening to their parents or... Right. um, Or that they'll be responsible for something if a plane crashes, that they were somehow the cause of that plane crashing. Which is why it's it's so confusing for parents because, you know, okay, so then your child, they think, well, okay, my child has obsessive compulsive disorder and their child, you know, has difficulty sleeping and difficulty settling, Um, you know, so they think it's ADD. It's so confusing for parents. Right, but that's the basic problem with today's nomenclature because, you know, every diagnosis and there is a classification based on uh, a tug-of-war of of very well-meaning thoughts and, you know, trying to decide how it's best to separate symptoms in a meaningful way. And what we're learning is that the, the, the basic rubric of deciding what was meaningfully lumped together we're understanding might be a very nice organizational system, but it actually is not... Uh, coinciding very well with how our brains work. Now that we're able to get such a better understanding, you know, to to be able to see brains working in real time, responding to things, and to, you know, with the, um, all the different ways between computers and imaging and genetics and mapping, you know, now we're understanding that the way that this this incredible organ actually creates behavior is really not the way we thought. And so you have a book with hundreds of diagnoses, and no wonder there's so much confusion because they're really defined incorrectly. And And it's really a spectrum. It really is a spectrum. I think what's confusing about the fear of harm phenotype, and people will say, well, you know, I mean, how many bipolar kids are really fear of harm phenotype? You're almost speaking in two different vocabularies because to the degree that bipolar disorder is a recognized DSM, classification, you know, it is a conceptual definition of an illness. Mm-hmm. Is it, you know, if you speak to me and, you know, I have quite strong opinions about this, but it's, I, I have no problem telling people it's a fiction. It's, you know, it's a very well-supported fiction, but it's a fiction. And at some point, we will be able to understand mental disorders from an evidence base, not a conceptual base. And once they're based in evidence, Once there's a reason to say this is what an illness looks like as opposed to I think this might be what it looks like, then a lot of this confusion will disappear. Right now we keep trying to assign children with illnesses that are really, the deck has been shuffled wrong. And so when you look at the fear of harm phenotype, the fact that all the symptoms of the comorbid illnesses that these kids have that were always lumped under different names. So all these illness, all these symptoms were put together and allowed to sort themselves out as to which symptoms always occur with other symptoms and what's the frequency. And, you know, through all these multiple regressions and everything, um, we were able to figure out the association of symptoms. 
and which symptoms completely and wholly go into this profile. And I these think, are what we call the dimensions. Excuse me, Elizabeth, I think it's important to point out that, you know, back when the DSM-3, which is the forerunner of the DSM-4, when there wasn't much change between the two, um, the idea was is that at that point, a psychiatrist in Boston and a psychiatrist in San Francisco could not come up with the same diagnosis, okay? And the, 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 um, the work, the task of those people that were assigned the task to develop the, uh, a new diagnostic manual in the nomenclature um, essentially had to, were more concerned with establishing a reliable set of symptoms that a psychiatrist in San Francisco and the psychiatrist in Boston could agree to if they saw a patient. Now, I had the good fortune of, um, of being a resident in psychiatry uh, at Columbia when the DSM-3 was being formulated. And Bob Spitzer and Gene Endicott, who were the architects of the DSM-3, were my teachers. And uh, each time we would we, we were we would get every three months we would get this little red book that would be in our mailboxes and you know like Chairman Mao's little red book we used to call it Chairman Bob's little red book <laughs> that would contain the latest iteration of these diagnoses and if we were in the outpatient clinic or the emergency room and we looked at a case and they didn't meet the one of these different diagnostic criteria, we were obliged to call Bob Spitzer, and if he was available, he'd come down and he'd, he'd, he'd interview the patient with us, and there would be this Talmudic discussion about whether they met the criteria or not. So we were clearly, the group of people that were part of that, understood that this was basically, you know, an attempt to try to come up with some consensus of what would be um, acceptable and, and what, you know, and, and reliable, but that it was always intended to change with scientific research. What happened right. was that it got reified because insurance companies began to demand that you give diagnostic, you know, the, the, the numbers in the DSM that responded to a particular criteria, and, 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 and the pharmaceutical industry began using these, these specific um, groups of diagnoses to get the FDA to approve drugs that would treat these conditions. So there's Absolutely. industries that developed around this. And, and then it was reinforced by the schools because the schools now, you know, if your child has a has a problem, they need a diagnosis in order to get right. services, which compounded it. So, you know, there be, it became very important to be, uh, you know, compartmentalized and to get a label, right. you know, which was a shame. But, you know, I want to go back to a little bit. I was reviewing today for the interview the fear of harm um, on your website. And, again, parents really need to look at it. But there were two things that really struck me. You know, I speak to hundreds of psychiatrists. And first, I want to say that everything you're saying, you are the pioneer, um, Dr. Popolis, because that's what they're all seeing, um, exactly what you're saying, that, you know, you can't fit these kids into this, this criteria. And, you know, there are a lot of mistakes being made. But what parents are saying after they listen to the interviews, what I think has struck them the most is the thermal dysregulation, mm-hmm. that I have yet to have a parent of a child with bipolar not have a child that has problems with thermal dysregulation. And one thing I didn't um, catch the last couple of interviews was that you say that most of this is in the PM. So in the evening hours is when a lot of the issues arise. 
um, if I read it correctly. So can you just tell us a little bit why the thermal dysregulation is off and why the evenings are worse? Well, um, I, I wouldn't necessarily say it's just during the evenings, but that is the most uh, sort of obvious time, I think. I mean, many of these children complain of hot flashes during mm -hmm. the day. Uh, they easily overheat in exertion. But at night, there is a circadian rhythm of body temperature where essentially um, if you think about two sort of sine waves that are overlapping and or uh, um, you, you have two different, uh, you have peripheral, meaning like if you were to touch your skin, like how hot you are, and then you have core, which is the inside, you know, core temperature. And these temperatures essentially vary, and they vary inversely. And there are curves that vary inversely over a 24-hour period. And sleep onset occurs when those curve occurs when those curves intersect. Wait, let's just say when one is going up, the other one's going down, and then mm -hmm. vice versa. So right. as one goes up and the other one's going down, when they both cross each other, that moment is the moment that switches the arousal state. That's when you go to sleep, and that's when they reverse and they go the other direction. That's when you wake up. Better said. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I'm not so, you know, before why. we go into it, because, you know, I, I want to make sure that we really dedicate a lot of time into ketamine because mm -hmm. this is huge. But before that, I just want to say that, um, you know, we spoke a little bit before the interview about the, um, I think it's called... Um, Distemper, mood dysregulation disorder. And, you know, the TDD is gone, but this is really no better. And there is a lot of confusion as to the real numbers of kids with bipolar. And some say that, in fact, bipolar is quite rare. Others say there is actually a rise, and misdiagnosis and misuse of the adult criteria is to blame. So, you know, just briefly, what are your thoughts? And um, why do you, feel, do you think that maybe the traditional medications don't work on these kids like they do on adults, which also... I think then parents think, well, my child isn't bipolar. Well, you know, if if I can just say something quickly about that last quiz before you forget it, um, you know, there are, it's a it's very possible. We believe that there's much more of a of a relationship between children who are treatment resistant and adults who are treatment resistant. There are there are both children and adults for who the current crop of meds are fairly effective. And whether they manifest more mania or more depression, I mean, personally, uh, Dr. Popolis and I both ascribe to a unipolar spectrum, meaning that there's a continuous spectrum from from just unipolar depression all the way up to, you know, passive bipolar and all the way up into pure mania, um, that a bipolar disorder is simply a point on the spectrum. So if you take this unipolar concept, which is, supported by a lot of very knowledgeable investigators. Um, you know, there are people on this spectrum who are completely undiagnosed right now because they don't meet the duration criteria that would make them bipolar or just major depression. In any case, there are people who are, who are acknowledged and recognized at this point, and there are many people who are not on the point on the spectrum that's acknowledged. We believe that there's a greater association between people who are treatment resistant and people who are not treatment resistant. We believe that children who are rapid cyclers 
also have very similar adults who are rapid cyclers. They just are not recognized as bipolar. So children who have episodic mania are likely to grow up into adults who have episodic mania. Children who are rapid cyclers, everybody's scratching their heads and saying these children could not have bipolar disorder because bipolar disorder has episodic mania. But there are a lot of adults who have rapid cycling mania. So probably the, the, the problem that everybody's so confused about is that we've picked single points on spectrums to define illnesses, and that's not the case. So you will find adults who look a lot like these children. We, we've, right. You know, in Dr. Poplos's practice, he has treated both. They have very similar phenotypes. It's not a developmental aspect of a disease that's going to change as they get older. Um, and so, for, so, so that's why there's so much confusion in terms of the diagnosis because the diagnoses really are not properly defined. So is bipolar disorder growing? Is it overdiagnosed? It's all of those. It's wrong. It's, not, it, it, it's hard to come up with firm numbers of things when the definition is merely conceptual. So exactly. the first exactly. thing that has to happen is to understand what illness it is that we're actually defining a rate of and, and in terms of understanding why the meds work for some and they don't, it's again because it's not that one person is bipolar and the meds work and one person is not bipolar and the meds work. It's because one person of particular phenotype is, is resistant, you know, is treatment resistant and needs a different mechanism of action. So there are many children today who would receive a bipolar diagnosis who are very, you know, very positively helped by the current crop of drugs. But there are many children for whom the current drugs do not target a mechanism that provides relief. And the thermal thermal dysregulation (laughs) that's so characteristic of this, this large number of children, many of whom have a bipolar diagnosis, um, but this large group of children who we say um, could be defined or who, who, who fit the criteria for the fear of harm phenotype. So children of the fear of harm phenotype with this thermal dysregulation are apparently treated very effectively by ketamine, which lowers body temperature. And in animal studies, I mean, this is how we came about basically going to ketamine. I mean, the first step was that we recognized that one of the major problems was either that they had a problem with dissipating heat from their bodies or they had a problem generating too much heat from their bodies. So we, And because all of them had these sleep arousal disorders that we talked about earlier, we decided that we would try to lower their body temperature and improve their ability to dissipate heat. So we gave them melatonin and we put fans around them uh, mm-hmm. 10 inches away from their bodies, basically, to help their bodies naturally dissipate heat. In about 90% of the cases, the sleep problems were totally abolished. I mean, they were sleeping better. They didn't have the nightmares, the night terrors, and all the other stuff. However, um, they continued to be symptomatic during the day, and they continued to have these fears and aggressive behavior, um, not maybe to the same extent, but it was still there. And other mm-hmm. the traditional drugs worked to a degree. They muted the aggression. You know, they they helped to, with the cycling, but really not sufficiently um, to make, to stabilize them. So we asked ourselves, well, 
is there a drug out in the pharmacopoeia that both reduces fear sensitization, since we saw that as a central problem, and also lowers body temperature? And lo and behold, there was a drug that's been around for 30 years that um, the World Health Organization says it should be one of the 40 drugs on every clinic's formulary because it has a number of different positive uses, including anesthesia. Um, and um, and we decided that uh, we would uh, – it, it, the animal studies showed that it reduced fear sensitization dramatically, and it also dose-dependently reduced body temperature. So when in one child that, you know, uh, who, had, who would be a poster child for fear of harm um, was going for dental surgery one day, and ketamine is used often by a dentist for, you know, teeth, ex- teeth extraction to, um, as an anesthetic, we, the parent and I convinced the dentist to use it. And this is a child that was terribly symptomatic and was, was on four different classes of medication. And we, the dentist agreed and gave her IV ketamine. And for two weeks, she was absolutely asymptomatic. I mean, it was wow. an amazing thing that we've seen. And at right. that point, we decided, I mean, you can't give IV ketamine, you know, weekly to, uh, right. you know. So we decided to look at a different form of administration. And we began a pilot study um, with intranasal ketamine. We now treated about 44 kids. And it had very dramatic and impressive results uh, with uh, in this group of children who we would who have the thermoregulatory problem and who have who have the rest of the fear of harm phenotype. Now we are about to um, begin a um, the, the FDA approved a study that we proposed um, to treat children. It's a it's a double-blind, uh, placebo-controlled study um, where we're going to be looking both at kids with bipolar disorder who do not have the fear of harm phenotype and children who do. And we're going to be looking at about 60 cases. Um, wow. Luca, we're going to be starting maybe in a couple of weeks. What do you say? That <laughs> is huge. Yeah. Yeah, we think it's a very important study because we know the observations we've had over the past several years, um, but the word is data, data, data. You know, we need the data. So this is going to provide the data. We're quite confident it will be successful. We, um, uh, Dr. Poplitz is Well, the results were very successful from, from your small trial. From and I, I had study. I had Absolutely. From the pilot study, I, I had, had the pleasure of meeting a young man who um, used it, and it was... Mm-hmm. Yeah. It just gives you the chills. So, you know, since I know we're coming to the end of the show, I just want to say a couple things very quickly because, you know, as a parent... Well, I have, actually, we child, have another 15 minutes scheduled, oh, we so we do. don't need to okay, rush. I'm yes, sorry, we do. We, we have done. extra time. Um, okay, go ahead, Ben. Um, well, you know, what I'm going to ask you I, was... Mm-hmm. Go, go ahead, um, Alyssa, go ahead. I was going to say, as long as I'm the project manager for this study, I can sort of provide a couple of nuts and bolts because I'm, I'm sure at this point of the conversation, people are very desperately interested in seeing, you know, if their kid could benefit from this, and if so, how do I get my kid right. to Right, yeah, yeah, I, that's and actually so where I was going things, with this. You know, that yeah. I want to say about it. Um, it's just like I, I, I'm having shades of memories from my last interview with you guys. You know, I totally get how desperate people are for relief yesterday. Um, it is very important to make clear to everybody that um, the best way to make this thing happen is to go forward in as 
confident and measured steps as we can so we don't blow anything and, um, you know, so that we just make sure that everything's right. This is the first, you know, this is a new approach to using a drug. Please, the literature is getting out there. They will find some doctors now based on some ketamine studies on adults that were done by um, Carlos Zarati, who is over at NIMH, National Institute of Mental Health. He's done some studies. That literature is out there. Dr. Papalos and his colleagues are in process of publishing the pilot study. That information will be out there. And so I know that some doctors out there across the country are adopting the protocol of Zerati and are starting to treat patients with intravenous ketamine. Um, I don't know if anybody will treat a child. These studies were adult studies. But the information is starting to get out there, and it's important for people to nag their doctors to become educated about it. Right. Uh, we'll and that's why on our I website. Those scholarly articles. Um, but I don't want anybody to jump ahead of this. Uh Dr. Popolos has is the only person who has been um attempting this with an intranasal administration. It's taken him a year and a half to two years to really become familiar with it so that he can from the day one at this point when a kid comes in, have a pretty good sense as to where to start with the titration. So while I'm sure everybody would like to go to their doctor and say, can you start my kid on intranasal ketamine, it's just not there yet. But it's important that you understand... Let me just ask a few questions then, Alyssa. Mm -hmm. Let me just um, go take a couple of steps back. Um, You know, what I wanted to ask was, you know, first of all, there there is a safety record. I mean, this isn't a mm-hmm. drug that is yeah. on the market now. This mm-hmm. is the future. Um, yeah. But, you know, there there is a safety record with it, as you said, with um, anesthesia and f- with other uses for um, pediatric use. Yeah. But, you know, um, Dr. Popolis, as far as the study itself, um, you know, parents are, you are going to be recru- recruiting some children for this. And, um, you know, how will this study work? What is the protocol for the study? Um, you know, the, ke- the ketamine is going to be administered intranasally. It's not an IV. Um, so, you know, how will this study be performed? You know, how often will the children get it? You know, how long is the study for? How do you choose the children? What criteria is it based on? Well, um as I said, the choice of, uh, you know, first of all, it's a placebo-controlled study, which means mm-hmm. that we will randomize children to get either placebo or to get ketamine, okay? So that means that 50% of the kids that are accepted into the study will not be getting ketamine, and 50% will, okay? Because the drug typically has been administered you know, at the very most once or twice uh, because it's used primarily as an anesthetic, at least in terms of its medical use, Um, uh, although now it is being used as a a treatment for neuropathic pain and is actually given off-label for that reason uh, regularly. Um, It has not been approved for that purpose by the FDA, and this is a this is certainly off-label use of the drug. Um, we were we asked to be able to give this drug uh, four times, basically, over an 18-day period. Um, we will be increasing the dose of the drug or the placebo over that period based on the weight of the child. Um, it is somewhat limiting to do that uh, for us because we may get a lot of false negatives because if you gave it six, seven, or eight times, you might, at higher doses, you might see 
you know, a response. But mm-hmm. we're we're confident because of the results that we've already seen that we're going to have a a positive response with uh, even giving it four times. Um, and the, but, can a child um, be on other medications, or does this child have yeah, to be um, in yeah. a washout? There's only there are only one or two drugs that the child will not be able to be on, and that is any drug that inter- uh, has been shown to interfere with the effect of, of ketamine. One is lamictal, lamotrigine is a generic, and the other is uh, uh, we we because the thermoregulatory response is so important, and we're going to be monitoring that with a very special monitor that's been developed over the two two years. Um, uh, with a, a grant um, uh, f- uh, by the JBRF, um, developed actually by us with the former NASA scientists who were working on sensors for uh, body temperature for astronauts. Um, we're going to be monitoring body temperature and other variables because we hope that we're going to be able to find uh, very specific um uh, measures that will tell us whether you know whether somebody is responding or not uh, on a physiological basis to the drug, um, mm-hmm. but you know so so they're going to be uh, a so lamictal and what was the other drug that that mel- melatonin, uh, melatonin oh, okay. which lowers body temperature so there right. will be um, okay. and also yep. any any drug like metformin. Um, which we know may have an effect on uh, metabolic rate, and uh, um, uh, but those are so far the only drugs that. Uh, well, that's good. You know, yeah, we recognize that kids can't come off their drugs; it would be too de- destabilizing. Yeah, exactly. So we're only yeah. So, so we're what, only what are some? Yeah, that's that's important because you know that the parents really you know even if they're not having enormous success, they don't want to rock the you know right. semi steady right. boat. Um, so, what are um, common side effects that you see with it, and what um, in, in your pilot study, what did you find to be um, some of the most predominant improvements? Well, side effects. Uh, first of all, the drug um, is out of your system essentially within five hours. So it can be very rapidly metabolized. Even um, though the effect of it lasts for, what's the average number of days it lasts? It's uh, three to five days in between doses if, if, well, the, you know, in the pilot study? Well, the effect, the, the, right. the effectiveness in terms of efficacy, in terms of the reduction or abolishment of symptoms, it's mm-hmm. three to four days. Wow. So, but, so that, but it's metabolizing out of the body within hours. Right, so we, we know there's some other effect besides the drug um, affecting the receptor. We we actually believe that there's a very direct effect on uh, the genes that are involved in this condition, which then, uh, you know, are induced and cause uh, a secondary effect that lasts for a long period of time, um, a longer period of time, certainly, than the drug is in the body. The side effects are, you know, really not more than an hour, usually 45 minutes, um, and typically dizziness, um, um, uh, that's a major side effect. I mean, the things that we most are concerned about are dissociative effects because this is a dissociative drug. It's like... Um, you know, uh, and if I can say, that's why the drug has a bad rap to begin with. Um, you know, this right. drug first came to market shortly after the hippie generation and tripping, you know, was all sorts of things to stay away from. 
So the drug does, it is a, it's a sedating agent. It has, its mechanism is to, to dissociate perception, um, how would I say this, uh, Dr. Pavlos? It, it dissociates the perception of pain from external stimuli. So um, th- those things, the person stays conscious while they're on it. Even when they're under sedation, there's movement, there's vocalization, the respiratory system does not get depressed, therefore wow. no okay. airway, you know, there's no mm-hmm. compromise to airway right. integrity. It's, it's an incredibly safe drug that's used on battlefields and in third world countries as the number one sedation agent because it is such a safe drug to apply. It's fast, it's fast in, it's fast out. And um, and it ha- presents very little airway issues, so you don't need you know ventilation. That's um, very important. Too. We kept away from it in this country, and we're really the only country that that just ran away from it because of these psychotomimetic effects. Basically, you can experience as if you're high. You know, you get woozy. You can see psychedelic things, and that's basically what when, when the brain is coming back online, the perception things from the processing things, you can tell I'm not the doctor here, um, when those come back online with each other, it causes visual-type hallucination. And that's short-term, like, like you said, scary. for an hour, yeah. For, right? Yeah, if that within, happens. I, I, right. I, I would say right. it's more like perceptual distortion. Like right. Mm-hmm. Might be, say, Mom, do you, do you have four eyes? I mean, let's say yeah. you have two eyes. So you this know, might it, seem alarming, but it's really not actually an alarming symptom. Um, you know, there have been hundreds right. of thousands of cases where this drug has been studied and, and monitored for adverse effects, adverse events in in pediatric patients. And you know, out of and and I know this because I did a lot of the research involved in this when we submitted to to FDA for approval for this study. And you can go through study after study after study, ten thousand cases, thirty thousand cases, and you know the adverse events are one or two. And when you know, it, it's not to say that people don't sometimes throw up. It's not to say that they don't get a bad taste in their mouth. It's not to say that right, there are it's, things they're, that they're, might be uncomfortable, but are they clinically significant? No, they're not clinically significant. Right. And are you know, I've been looking no. into this drug for my daughter, and as many of the listeners know, my um, one of my daughters has a very serious pain disorder. Um, and, you know, I've been looking for answers and I've been, you know, ready to turn to Europe and um, ketamine is one of the drugs, actually, that right. I do find. And um, so I have... <laughs> Um, you know, really looked into this drug, and it does have a very good safety profile in pediatrics. Um, when it's you know, as far as the study, let me just address because I know people say, "Why would you be giving my kid a drug that has, you know, is a drug of abuse?" And and I also have to say, on this regard, um, as a drug of abuse, it, it's it's one that is abused at doses that are magnitudes of order higher than what we are talking about giving to children, and it is usually part of a poly drug habit, and when there are accidents involving ketamine, it's because the person has taken such a high dose that they fall down and they knock their head. It's secondary to the drug. So this is really not a situation that a child under the care of a doctor and parents will be facing. There are also, you know, to be completely honest, and we've written about this in the, you know, it's on our website, um, people who have used very high doses of ketamine that can develop very severe lower urinary urinary tract infection. However, the literature on this is very inconsistent in terms of how they quantify what the habit is, um, what the duration is, and basically from our review of the literature, 
the people who have ended up in trouble are the ones who have had known symptoms for an excessive period of time without seeking medical help. Um, and, you know, um, you know, we only have a, a few minutes left, so I just mm-hmm. wanted to, um, you know, I mean, really, it, any parent, any family that is dealing with this disorder knows that it, it really is devastating. And, um, as, you know, even for adults, a lot of these medications really don't help. So when something like this is a possible um, treatment, it is just, it, it's huge. And, yeah. you know, as I said, it's always a risk-benefit, and this you know, if, as far as these medications go, this is a very low risk and possibly yeah. a very well, high benefit. So, I mean, what is the criteria? What is the criteria um, for enrollment, um, and how do parents find out? I understand that you're going to be um, looking for um, yeah. children Should I run soon. This through quickly. Um, yes, we will be putting out a blast. Um, it will go out through our mailing list on the Juvenile Bipolar Research Foundation website. So if you are on our mailing list, or Dr. Poplos also maintains a website called The Bipolar Child. Um, each of us has you know, a mailing list, and we will send a blast out saying the application is now ready for you to fill out. You know, Click here, and you will get linked to the application. Can you give me those websites? So that's what, www.thebipolarchild.com. Okay, and the other, what is yours? Yours is JBRS? Well, wait, wait. When you get to BipolarChild.com, you have to click on the tab that's on the upper right column of the home page, upper right side of the home page. I think it's an orange tab that says blog. And when you go to that blog page, that's where you will find the link to the application, as well as stories written by parents and kids who have been on the drug and have been you know, conversing in a blog style about it. So that's where you will find it on the Bipolar Child. And on our website, it, it's www.jbrf.org. And on the right-hand side of the homepage, you will see in the column a section that says Ketamine Study or Ketamine Information, Information Center. If you click on that, it will bring you to the study page, which right now, since we're not actively recruiting right now, says coming or something like that. As soon as we're ready to go, that will become an active page. But what we will do is between now and when we actually send out the blast, anybody who's interested should sign up on the mailing lists of either of these two sites so that they can be sure that they will get notified when the recruiting starts. So the process for recruiting is there will be a very brief pre-screener that will just ask some basic questions that would immediately identify whether you can be in or out of the study. Oh, let me say importantly, we will only be able to take who live in either New York, Connecticut, or New Jersey, and who are between the ages of 6 and 12, and who weigh between 40 pounds and 220 pounds. Um, We cannot take anybody outside of this area because the study is being conducted in each child's home. The child and Mm -hmm. their family do not need to come to any place. We will come to you. We cannot staff the whole country. So we can only do the tri-state area, um, you can send in your application. There will be a brief pre-screener. At the end of that, it will say, go ahead to the next part of the application, or we're sorry, based on what you've told us, we cannot include you in the study. You then okay. finish the next part of the application. It comes to us. If your child still remains eligible, it comes to us. Dr. Poplos reviews and evaluates every application to determine if the child is a likely candidate for the study. And then, you know, those children who are determined to be likely eligible candidates, 
we, they will be placed on an eligible candidate list. We will contact them and let them know that at some course over the time of the study, four children at a time, um, 18 days per child, we will hopefully get to you. Um, okay. It's not a done deal. It's it's you know something we're all going to have to be patient and work with each other. Well, when, um, the, mm-hmm, when do you think this study will be starting? I think that the blast will go out in two weeks. Okay, that's terrific. Dr. Papalos, I mean, this is just really incredible. And, um, you know, it's not that, you know, this is going to be the, the, you know, beginning of the end, but, I mean, this is just going to give parents so much hope. Um, Is there anything else that you'd like to say about um, the ketamine and any of the other research that you're doing? Um, I think we said said what we needed to say. I think it's, um, you know, I think it's a beginning. Uh, uh, It's a good beginning. I think that that, um, um, what we find from this is going to bring us much more information that may even lead to uh, even better treatments in the future. And uh, we're all, all of us that have been working on this are extremely hopeful that uh, it will and Inga Inga Shogren, yeah, she was supposed to be on too. She's she's also incredible. Um, and can I just say, you know, in terms of choosing whether or not you for your child to participate in this study, you know, it is a short-term study for each individual child. We're talking about four administrations, and what you're likely to find out in such a short period of time is whether your child is likely to or is not likely to respond favorably right. to ketamine. And that unto itself, you know, and then you know, the study's over, and what do you do with that information? You know, while we wish that we could say, well, you can continue treatment with it, you know, it's not at that point, but if you know your child is a responder, then you might be able at this early point to find somebody who would be able to provide IV treatments. I know that they are starting to talk about using them on a continuation management basis. But so under the intranasal any isn't something that's available well, then? Huh? at this point, Dr. Popolis is the only one using the intranasal. Mm-hmm. And as I say, you know, we're trying to get out there as fast as we can. We'll be videotaping the training sessions for the staff and everything. We're going to try to get this information out as soon as it's, it's, as soon as it's ready for any other professional to benefit by knowing it. But mm-hmm. what... what even if your child personally is not able to be to continue treatment or gets the placebo, it's really important work. It cannot be done without the interest of of the people out there. So, you know, it might help you directly. It might not help you directly. It will help all of us shortly down the road. Um, and we can't do it without you. So Absolutely. that's our plea Absolutely. to you. We're working as hard as we can. We need you to. Okay. Well, I'm sure that um, you're going to be getting a lot of uh, applications filled out, and uh, I I thank you both. Um, Obviously, I'm hoping to have you back when this study is over so that you can let everyone know the status. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah, we would love to. We'd love to keep you posted on it. We certainly will keep things posted on our website so people can, you know, can catch on. Yeah, and I'm going well. to be um I'm going to be putting the links on our website, www.thecoffeeclatch.com, so you know listeners can go there also mm-hmm. to um uh, find out. And you know, obviously, you know I'm very fond of both of you. I'm thrilled that you came back on and I wish you the best of luck. You're really helping a lot of people. Thank you so much, Marion, and you're really so helping much, all of us too. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you. So we'll much. we'll be in touch. Great. Take care. Um tonight you too. Tonight was a special show because as I've always said, the Juvenile Bipolar Foundation, to me, is one of the best in the world. Um, It's also special to me because I am going to be taking a hiatus from 
the coffee clutch. I'm going to be taking a few weeks off, probably two months, um, to care for my child. Um, so I just want to let everyone know that our shows are available in archive. They are available in iTunes. I will be back in um, August. Um, Bright Not Broken, our newest show, is going to be on Wednesday night. That's Wednesday nights. That's a show for twice exceptional gifted children with disabilities and different mental illnesses or autism, and it's a fantastic show. And um, you can catch that on Wednesday nights. So, as I end each show, you are your child's best advocate. If not you, then who? Become an informed, educated parent. And remember, when you hear the words mental illness, take out the mental and remember illness. Thank you for joining us.